An American girl named Susie Banyan is accepted into a prestigious German ballet academy that is secretly a bloodthirsty witch coven. Who is ready for some wicked witchcraft, motherfuckers? <laughs> Me. <laughs> I know I am. That's why we're talking about the 1977 Italian horror classic, Suspiria. Again, darkness, beauty, rage, chaos, love, and a whole lot of blood. I'm Connor Izagari. And I am Josh Allred. And this is Filmgasm. Happy Wednesday, listeners. Welcome to another episode of the Filmgasm podcast. If you're a longtime listener and have a vague memory of hearing my voice talk about Suspiria already, it's okay. You're not crazy. I chose both the 1977 and 2018 versions of Suspiria for one of my early solo episodes of the show, episode seven, to be precise. The episode didn't even crest 20 minutes, which is embarrassing for a fledgling horror podcast. I have no excuse except to say that I was inexperienced, lacked a fully functional podcast team. But things have changed, and now it's time to give Suspiria the in-depth look it deserves. And who better than the biggest fan of Italian horror I have ever known, Josh Allred. Thanks for being here. Oh, thanks. You're pumping me up. I appreciate that. Oh, yeah. This is going to be fun. Uh, Before we get into it, I've got two updates on the Rewind. First, an update on our Salem's Lot episode, which was a while back. Four actors have been cast in the upcoming Salem's Lot remake from Gary Dauberman. Uh, Lewis Pullman will play Ben Mears. Mackenzie Lee will play Susan Norton. Bill Camp will play Matthew Burke and Spencer Treat Clark will play Mike Ryerson. The film is slowly but surely taking shape as it begins production. And uh, we, we talked a little bit about this in uh, last week's sneak preview. Uh, I'm excited as hell for Salem's Lot. And this is shaping up to be a very interesting cast, not you know just going straight for the A-listers, but actually like giving us some intriguing personality into this movie. And I'm really excited to see who they grab for Kurt, Bar- uh, Kurt Barlow. Yeah, I... I would like it if they don't um, they don't give it away right away, because I think the fact that whoever is going to do it is going to be under a lot of makeup. You can, honestly, if they were really trying to be funny, hear me out. Bill Skarsgård. <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> I mean, if you if, if you think about it, the way he was able to kind of just turn into a chameleon and completely inhabit Pennywise. I think, I think he could do it. Absolutely. And, you know, so, somebody that could give that character, you know, the, the, the presence that it needs for sure. Counterpoint. We've had Bill Skarsgård play Pennywise. We've had Alexander Skarsgård play Randall flag. Why not make it a hat trick and give the role to Stellan Skarsgård? Why not? Skarsgård's like playing Stephen King's most iconic characters. So I, 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 I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is shaping up to be something really exciting. And I think it's going to be scary as shit because the book is. And I haven't seen the 2004 miniseries, but I, I did not care for the 70, 79, I think it was. Uh, yeah, I think that was just like goofy. <laughs> David Soul, are you kidding me? 
Yeah, I think we talked a little bit about it when we were talking about um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. I just feel like that movie suffered because it was made for TV and it just got neutered. I think if they would have let Hooper do what he was going to do, I think he would have made a a much more faithful adaptation of that book. That's just the story of Toby Hooper's life and it just... Pretty All much. these projects get neutered somehow. It's a goddamn shame because what he does when you let him go and just let him go and do his thing is he's magical. Yeah. And I would have, you know, 1979, a like full budgeted R rated Toby Hooper Salem plot. That is something we'd still be talking about. <laughs> yeah. Because if you think about it, like the way he was able to capture that small town feel, that middle of nowhere feel, and with the things that happen in Salem's lot throughout the course of the story, how it slowly becomes like a fucking ghost town after a while, like there would have been nobody better at that time to be able to pull something like that off. I don't know if I've ever talked about this on the air. Never mind. I don't know the issue. I don't know the rights issue surrounding that. Never mind. I will not speak of this, but somebody close to me is involved in a Stephen King project. And it, okay, that's all I got. <laughs> I don't want to fuck anyone's career here. <laughs> well, good luck to them. Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you about it when the mic's off. <laughs> Sounds good. I love juicy <laughs> gossip. Um, next up, an update on our Texas Chainsaw Massacre episode. And I guess Texas Chainsaw 2, since we're franchising these now. Netflix has purchased the rights to Fede Alvarez's upcoming direct sequel. Uh, the sequel stars Elsie Fisher, Sarah Yarkin, Jacob Lattimore, and Mo Dunford, and has already completed production, allegedly. No release date has been announced. And I remember uh, texted this to Caleb, and he's, he immediately said, I have lost all faith in this. And I'm like, that's, that's harsh. I mean, Netflix, it's not every movie they do is shit. This is not terrible news. Well, and they're not, they, they have nothing to do with it other than their landing the the worldwide distribution rights to to show it that's it yeah and not only that netflix has put movies out in a theater before i don't think they're going to do it with this one however it's not so i'll have to i'll have to send you the link for it the editor of bloody disgusting john squires had a little think about this and i didn't get to finish reading it but it's not necessarily the death knell that it might've been five years ago, maybe even seven years ago, if you want to pull back a little bit farther, because the notion of something going direct to direct to video is not what it was in the eighties. Everything that was direct to video back then was low budget, poor talent, inexperienced directors and crew, and people just trying to turn something around as quick as possible just to make a buck. That's it. That's all it was about. And you could tell, you could tell the movies that were made that way. Now, there are some that are quite endearing and I love them for that. Others just get lost in the shuffle. And that was part of trying to fill that gap in the home video market at the time. The, the model was changing. The studios and everybody else was trying to catch up. And that was the that was the side effect of it. This is the case now where streaming has become almost like the de facto form of entertainment for people 
Uh, I don't know very many people personally who still have a cable subscription. <laughs> and I know if uh, Caleb is talking about doing that when we move in together, I'm like, why? Yeah. Why? Like, there's no point. It's, 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 I don't know. And I think this is, this is something that shouldn't be looked down upon because guess what? You haven't seen it yet. You don't know <laughs> to make a, to, to make a judgment like that is to just deride something before you've even had a chance to see it. True. But in his defense and I, where this is coming from is through, you know, almost eight months full of, um, sneak preview we've covered a lot of netflix movies and most of those have been shit so i get his apprehension of like oh something i love is coming from netflix now does that you know he's making a a connection there and i get that but like you said all they're doing is distributing it they're not they have nothing to do with production and we haven't seen it yet so yeah i'm gonna i'm still gonna i'm gonna remain excited about this yeah i think i think what what this is, what Legendary did is they made a business decision. They understood that they might not be able to have the kind of, you know, return on investment if they would have put this out in theaters. Netflix made them an offer. They probably couldn't turn it down because of what they were going to get out of it. Why not do it? And they're that movie is not going to live and die on a weekend. It'll be there. People will find it. If it's good enough, word of mouth will continue to push it out. So me, I have my own, I have my own apprehension about it just because it's like, how many times have they done this to the, to the, to this particular franchise where they've started it over again, they've rebooted it, they've prequeled it, they've rebooted the prequel. And I'm just like, you got to stop. At some point, you have to find out what has worked and go for that. I mean, it worked for Halloween. Why not? And Candyman, that's been, that's been proof. Even though, even though that's not necessarily like, because if you think about it now, it's kind of Candyman parentheses four, if you want to call it that. Um, you know, I mean, and that's just... That's just being very uh, nitpicky about things. Um, I just, I just don't like it when, and I'm I'm guilty of it sometimes, just as much as anybody else. I I think the nature of how this is happening should be more informative on your opinion than a knee jerk reaction to seeing something that you thought of, thought was going to theaters, and now it's not. There's just so many other factors that are playing into this that you just gotta you just gotta give it a chance. Be happy that there somebody's going back to the well and we're gonna get something. And if it's good, it's good. The bar is pretty fucking low, given what's come before it. So why not? Yeah, I'm more interested to see if Fede Alvarez really is a one you know one trick pony with Evil Dead. You know, Don't Breathe was kind of his you know, can I do something original movie? And yeah, it was a hit and I'm in the minority of people who didn't care for it, but can he do what he did with evil dead to Texas chainsaw a franchise that desperately needs a win? Uh, we'll see. And we'll see it on Netflix. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That means you can sit in your underwear if you want to and eat pizza off your stomach 
and not worry about somebody looking over watching you if you fall asleep halfway through it because you're bored. I mean, that's what I do at the theater anyway. So, like, my routine isn't going to change much. Well, <laughs> all right. Look at you just throwing caution to the wind. It is my time. <laughs> Don't stay out of my time. <laughs> I'm just, oh, God, can you imagine if I looked over and saw that shit? I, I, this is the movie now. Like, fuck whatever's on the screen. I'm watching this guy now. <laughs> uh, so, Suspiria, long time coming. Um, Josh, pretend I know dick about Italian horror, which shouldn't be hard. Um, and tell us a little bit about Dario Argento. Okay. So, what I know about Argento is he started out writing um, film criticism at one point and, and then came onto the scene with uh, one of the, and this is something that I just find re really funny and only really rings true mostly with Italian movies is they have these ridiculously long titles for their movies. His first movie was called The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. And that was following along with what um, Italy was doing during the, during the seventies and almost into the eighties of um, their kind of version of slasher movies, which is called Giallos. And they were called that because I think it's like the fifties, I think, or the sixties. They, um, they, there was a series of just like these trashy pulp novels that were like just really sensational, full of violence and murder and all this, all this jazz. And the books were yellow. Giallo is the Italian word for yellow. So that's where that comes from. And those kinds of stories were made by like Sergio Martino, Mario Bava, one of the most famous ones, that being uh, A Bay of Blood, which a lot of people say that Sean Cunningham ripped off in making uh friday the 13th so get your eyeballs on bay of blood and then go back and watch friday the 13th the similarities are pretty eerie that's all i'll say about that um argento comes and does that and then he follows it up with i want to say it's four flies on gray velvet and then the cat of nine tails and all of these are pretty much standard um, giallo movies. The killer is often a mystery. You don't know. You see a lot of the killer. The only time you see the killer is when they're murdering somebody. They're always wearing black gloves. These kinds of things always happen. They're very formulaic. Um, Argento is very much all about the artfulness of his shots and the way he constructs his films. It's very meticulous. Um, there's a very famous story talking about deep red where he had the script that was almost, it was over 300 pages at one point, Jesus. which is insane. Yeah. <laughs> like if anybody were to come to anybody with a 300 page script, they'd laugh at you. Yeah. Argento had that. Um, and after he did cat and nine tails, he did this goofy comedy that wasn't very well received in 1974 and then he comes and does deep red 
deep red i kind of view it as like a bridge between the giallo and the supernatural which is where he starts to lean in with his other his later movies and then he goes full on supernatural and batshit crazy and utterly beautiful with suspiria um it's it's really because a lot of people like to think he's like they call him like the italian hitchcock and he does have a lot of reverence for hitchcock i mean he made a movie literally called do you like hitchcock (laughs) so he definitely he definitely has a thing for hitchcock but probably not as solid of a comparison as some people would think if you you try and watch him a little bit more um he's one of these he's one of these directors that like he's not afraid to do what he wants to do he's not afraid to like find the right people to collaborate with um the cinematographer that he collaborated with in Suspiria, Luciano Tavoli, he found him and he talked to him directly. And Tavoli actually originally didn't want to do it. So Tavoli had been Tavoli had been working a lot with um, other directors, and like he, his whole approach was more about using natural light. And he didn't like horror movies, you know. So like he he just wasn't interested in in any of that kind of stuff. However. He saw a bunch of people running out. I think it was it was either Cat of Nine Tails or Deep Red, one of them. He saw a bunch of people running out of the theater talking about this Argento guy. Talking about, and he's like, okay, I have to see this movie. And I think it was Cat of Nine Tails. I probably will be wrong, but one of those. He either saw Cat of Nine Tails or, or Deep Red and was like, holy shit, I have to work with this guy. Like, this guy is amazing. And Tavoli saw something in there. And so they they collaborated and the so the thing you have to kind of understand about italian movies in general is they are way more about the the artfulness and much more emphasis is put on the the other pieces of filmmaking and not as heavy on relying on narrative to drive your experience yeah um oftentimes the setups are very very simple like the majority of the of his early films with the the exception being his comedy is like they're murder mysteries if you really want to boil them down to what they are they're murder mysteries oftentimes it's an outsider seeing something that they shouldn't have seen and then they're trying to investigate it and trying to figure out who did it which is almost like every other Hitchcock movie that came out for quite a while. Um, the, the big difference being it was Hitchcock and he was using people like fucking Ingrid Bergman and Jimmy Stewart or Cary Grant and those kinds of people and Kim Novak and shit like that. And so like the caliber of people was different, but they're essentially telling the same stories and something that, um, is really like these movies are a very visceral experience. Oftentimes you're very challenged by what you see on screen in content, but also just you're not getting spoon fed information. So 
it keeps you engaged. It should keep you engaged in, in that regard. It, it's something I had to learn to kind of be more of an active viewer when I was in film school and movies like this, especially stuff that comes from Europe, it's, it's done so in a way that it keeps you engaged because they can't rely on having not often having like native English speakers in their, in their cast. They might have one or two actors that speak English, but as Jessica Harper famously said uh, about working on Suspiria, it was like being at the tower of Babel. Like all these people are speaking different languages to each other. Nobody's speaking the same language, but yet everybody's understanding each other. So it's, it's a very interesting thing. And at first, I, I will I will I will tell you this. I did not like some Italian movies at first because I because I couldn't I had to get over the I had to get over the artifice of it. Watching people who you know they're not like like their lines are being dubbed. So like you have to get over that whole thing about their lips aren't matching the audio that you're hearing. And it's it's not it's not a Hollywood movie. You have to like strip yourself of all of that knowledge and all of that conditioning that you have and just sit back and experience something. Suspiria is a movie that you don't watch, you experience it and it sticks with you. Like, I can't tell you how many times I hear that theme in my head <laughs> and just at, at, at random times, it's like, I just, I don't know. It's just always there. I've definitely seen more Italian films than I have of any other uh, foreign nation, mostly because I'm a big spaghetti Western fan. But, you know, back when we um, we really dug into Fulci, that was uh, kind of my first real deep dive into Italian horror. And I'd seen Suspiria years ago. It was my uh, <laughs> I took European film uh, my sophomore year of college and I begged him to let me do Suspiria as my final paper, but it was like right outside of his window. And he was like, yeah, all right. You seem excited. You can do it. And I didn't have a DVD. I didn't have time to find a DVD. Like this was back when I was like, not just renting shit on streaming. I didn't know you could do that. And um, I found a very grainy copy on you, like a, a YouTube upload that I watched. And I was like, this is not as great as I thought it was going to be. But that's entirely because I was watching a shitty version of it. Mm -hmm. And then later on, when I bought it, I found a DVD copy and I bought it on a whim. And I'm like, this is gorgeous. Like, this is creepy. This is great. So I didn't do well on that paper because I basically was like, this is not as exciting as I thought. So I regret that. But I, I, I like Italian filmmaking. Uh, I just like, like you, I have to get past the wall. I have to just except the fact that I'm, I'm most likely not going to get a very compelling narrative here, but I am going to see some visually striking shit. Uh, and with Argento, I noticed like he kind of, he really does try to have a narrative. Like there is a narrative there. It's just, he doesn't put as much effort into the narrative as he does into, with everything else, which is fine. Uh, you know, it's his style, but uh, I'm glad you made me watch deep red. That was, uh, I appreciated the bridge and yeah, yeah, it was good. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, um, it's one of those things like, cause everything that comes before it is pretty straightforward and it's very much rooted in the real world. And so when 
the ending comes around and you find out who exactly has been killing everybody, you're like, what the fuck? Like, are you serious? And it just, it's never, it never like hints at it at all. It just like, I, I think, I think the only, the only indication that you get that something really kind of weird is happening is because like a psychic is the person who first felt whatever was going on. And so you're just like, yeah, all right, whatever. But the, the manner in which it comes about is very, very striking. And I, there are plenty of people that say that that's like Argento's best movie. And I don't agree. I, I love deep red. I think it's fantastic. I think it, it's also laying the foundations for what happens in Suspiria. I think Argento was making some interesting like decisions and in Suspiria, he just decided to go full bore and he wasn't held back. Yeah, I agree. I get, but I can see like teases of what he wanted to do in Deep Red. Like, like the decapitation. <laughs> what the fuck? That was so cool. A diamond necklace. That's, that's brilliant. And then the whole idea of a killer like attending a psychic seminar and then the psychic's like, I feel death and murder. And she's like, oh, I got I to gotta take care of that. <laughs> that could that be traced back to me. <laughs> like, no. But just, I, I liked it. Um, I did give it a seven. It was a little, the pacing was a little off at times. I, I, I droned out a couple times, but better than I expected. I think I like Argento more than I like Fulci. If you could compare the two. I don't want to do that, but. Yeah, I don't my experience. Yeah. I don't know that you can compare them yeah. because they just they both work in such drastically different ways. I feel like Fulci was very um very a very technically competent director. He knew exactly what he wanted visually. He it, it it's almost like he saw a lot of the movie in his own head and he knew he knew what he wanted to do with it. Argento can be seen as being a lot more experimental and and i hate using the word as a comparison but it's 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 the only one that's coming to my head right now like argento is kind of like a, a jazzy director like he just improvises he goes on feeling and intuition fulci is like no this is what i want and this is what we will get and you know like that that whole scene at the end of the beyond he literally was like this is what I want. And they're like, Oh shit. Like now we got to fucking make it happen. Now it happened by accident that they found what they ended up using. But Fulci, like he was, he, he's very, he's very, um, very meticulous and very direct in what he wants. Argento will lean on somebody like Tavoli, who he knows is a very accomplished cinematographer and to get what he wants out of it. And somebody that he knows that when they're going through the process of printing this thing, that he's going to be in there and he's going to know how to really bring what Argento wants because they were very much hand in hand when they were first starting out in this. Like Argento told him about being influenced by, of all things, fucking Walt Disney Snow White. And how the primary color scheme in that, and the way that it was, the way that it was um, animated, and I and I'm pretty sure it was in Technicolor too. It um it just it was so stark 
and so bright and so intense. And that was something that Argento wanted to, to use. He wanted that. He wanted the lighting to be its own character and to work in its, in its own way, where, where like the music of Goblin is its own character and it works in its own way to cue you on what's going on. The lighting does the same thing. And it's just all these different ways that Argento is using every tool or every paint in his palette to make this masterpiece and movies like Suspiria don't come along every so, you know, like every day. And I think the fact that this movie has endured for over 40 years now says something. I mean, next year is going to be its 45th anniversary. That's insane. That's awesome. I, yeah, I didn't know that. Um, but yeah, this film, there's something about this film. It's, it very much feels like it exists in another dimension, like a world that combined, you know, fantasy and horror into some like unholy spawn. I don't know what it is. Every time I watch this movie, I'm more drawn into it. It's, it's so odd. Uh, I remember, yeah, the whole Snow White thing, that makes perfect sense. It definitely has a similar color palette. Uh, it is cool to use such bright colors in contrast with such dark themes. Uh, it kind of puts you, like, it's, it like splits your mind in the weirdest way. It's like you said, this movie's an experience. It really is. It's hard to explain. Well, and I think, and I think a lot of that is intentional. Um, yeah. Something else that Argento was also leaning on was German expressionist films. And a lot of those are very, they're, they're very careful. They're very meticulous about how they used shadows and shadows in and of themselves were used to create the illusion of depth or the illusion of, you know, the, the size of something. And when you contrast that with intense color, it makes the black even blacker. And that is, that is certainly something that you, again, you don't see that often. And when we, so I'll go ahead and kind of just bring this, bring this little bit out as far as like the technical side of what they were trying to do with Suspiria, the way it was shot. Um, and I actually believed this for the longest time because it was just how it was presented to me. Um, there was a misconception that they used a Technicolor camera for this film and they didn't. They used regular like Kodak film at the time and a regular film camera. What they did after that, that is where Technicolor came in. Um, at that time, Technicolor was pretty much on its way out. And what they did, there's a process that Technicolor did called dye transfer. And essentially, they used the three main colors of red, yellow, and cyan, or green, some call it green. They, uh, they used that in order to layer onto the negative and print it to get these intense, bright, vivid colors. And what they did in, what they did with Suspiria is they removed um, one of the uh, one of the guys that was doing the printing of it, 
they convinced him to remove certain diffusers for certain colors in certain areas of the film so that the colors would be more intense and there wouldn't be any bleed through. So they had control, literal, like actual physical control over how intense the colors were throughout the entire film. So that when it's red, it's fucking red. If it's blue, it's blue. And there's no bleed if you really pay attention to it. And it was something I, I noticed the first time I watched it on the Synapse um, restoration that I have. And then just the other day, I watched it again when I was doing my review. And you see it like it is there. Like there's so much control over all of the color and it is so intense. and It's so vibrant. Um, the scene at the beginning where... Jessica is riding with the cab driver and they're going through and you see these little cones of color. Like they are just like shafts, intense shafts of light that are coming out of the, out of these little planners. And, and it's also like controlled another, another very, uh, I, I don't want to say happy accident because it's just a function of the way the process went, but the way those films were printed, they did not fade in the way that more conventional film stock faded because of the nature of the process of them doing that, they essentially created a fade proof print, which is what they used in order to do the Blu-ray restoration for Suspiria that Synapse had. So like other films would degrade and fade to where they looked pink when you would look at them. Suspiria doesn't look that way. Suspiria looks the exact same way that it did in 1977. And shortly after that, Technicolor Rome closed down. So it, Suspiria was literally the last film they made in Italy that used that dye transfer process to print the film. It's a hell of a last hurrah, gotta say. Good work. That is, yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> and then I, I learned about dye transfer. Um, I took some film courses in college and we talked a bit about dye transfer. They old, uh, some old silent films used to kind of, you know, not as well, uh, not as good as Suspiria was, but they used to like paint the negative to make it to like create the illusion of color. Never mm -hmm. looked that great, but it's cool that that kind of process evolved to make this movie as vibrant and memorable as it became. That's, that's cool. I like that. Yeah. The, um, the article that I, um, I referenced in my review um, when they're talking to uh, Luciano Tavoli, he, uh, he even said that the technician that he was working with, like looked at him like he was crazy because of what they were asking him to do. He's just like, you want to do what? <laughs> uh, I mean, okay. If that's what you want to do, like whatever. Cause I, I know I I think he thought that they were just talking crazy. Yeah. And he was like, you don't want the colors to blend or you want them to just stand out on their own. All right. And sure shit, like they knew what they were doing. So the end product we get is one of the more beautiful and nightmarish films to ever come out of Italy. Yeah, damn straight. This was my intro to Italian horror. And uh, I'm not going to say I'm well-versed, but I've seen more than, I mean, I've seen my fair share at this point, but it started with Suspiria. And I think most people, it starts with Suspiria. 
this is one of the few, you know, films that I think is universally known out of uh, that era. In my experience, I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> um, it's kind of it's kind of how a lot of people get into it from my own experience. This was the first Italian horror movie I saw. And then shortly after that, I watched Zombie, City of the Living Dead. I saw Deep Red. I saw Bird of the Crystal Plumage. You know, so I started going through all of them yeah. and then getting back through Sergio Martino and then into Mario Bava. And Bava is kind of like the the godfather, if you will, for lack of a better word, of Italian horror directors. And it it kind of all starts from him. And I mean, his son, Lamberto, working with Argento, did Demons, which is another, it's a fan-fucking-tastic movie. It, like, it starts at like a seven, and then by the end of it, it is full bore 11 balls to the wall, just intense shit happening. And it just, it never lets up. It's a fun one. It's a totally fun movie. Um, the title says it all. And it's essentially, it's essentially um, a, a, a demonic outbreak happens in a movie theater while people are watching a movie. So <laughs> that's all I'll say. <laughs> yeah, Demons has been on my list for a very long time. Uh, yeah, we'll have to do that at some point. Um, by the time. way, oh yeah, the fir- uh, Suspiria. I wanted to know what the hell that meant. Uh, so I Googled it. It comes from the Latin phrase suspiria de profundis, which means sighs from the depths, which is disturbing as shit, knowing like what this movie's about. <laughs> um, it was coined by English writer Thomas De Quincey in 1845 in his essay of the same name. And this essay inspired Argento to create his so-called Three Mothers trilogy, beginning with Suspiria, continuing with 1980s Inferno, and ending with 2007's Mother of Tears. Uh, have you seen those other two films? Oh, yeah. Um, Inferno is another one that has some beautiful imagery in it. There is a scene where this woman who is finding out the apartment building she moved into has got some other shit going on. And she's like under, she's in the basement. She sees this little hole in the, in the floor. She looks down and it's just like it's just, this whole ballroom is like underwater and she drops her keys. And as she's trying to get them, she kind of just like, well, shit, I guess I got to go down there. And she goes under the water and she's swimming through. And it's like the most beautiful underwater imagery I've ever seen next to um, zombie with that whole underwater <laughs> scene and how beautiful it looks like it's uh, like it's it's no shit like very well done, very well shot. And again, Argento is really hitting on color in that. And then there's, and then he throws in some really horrific shit. Um, Mother of tears kind of, I think it, I think it came too late. It is, it's not as good. It has a very kind of has like a very like 90s straight to video vibe to it. Um, It's just, it has some very visceral moments. I think the ambition for the script and the budget just never matched up. Um, basically because like the setup is they find the mother of tears, they find her bones. And when they dig her up, she like gets her powers back or 
something and then like she's calling out to witches all over the world and so all these witches from all over the world are descending on rome and they're essentially trying to you know murder everybody there but you don't really see a lot of that a lot of it is just heavily implied that that's what's going on you don't get to see a lot of it so it's kind of a letdown in that regard um i think argento kind of comes back into it when he does his masters of horror episodes which I don't know if you've seen those yet. Uh, the one Jennifer is really f- wolf. That movie is all kinds of fucked up. And then he does another one with meatloaf is the main character and it's called pelts. And yeah, it's crazy ass really like when you, okay. So the premise of it is meatloaf is a, uh, he has like, a, he has this girl that's like, He's trying to get into like the fashion world or some shit. And he, and he goes and he's trying to find like the most beautiful pelts to make a jacket for her or a coat for this girl to wear. And he finds this fucking enchanted place where these raccoons are and he traps them, kills them, skins them. But what he comes to find out is these are like magical creatures and insanity ensues after that. Um, it's got one of the craziest fucking endings i've ever seen and only argento could come could come through a movie like that so yeah i encourage you to find those out watch them um because yeah if if i'm ranking if i'm ranking them they go right in order suspiria inferno and then mother of tears okay i wonder what was it just like the budget that kept him from doing the third mother's movie for 30 years i don't think it was necessarily that i think it was him just not wanting to because he's very like he, he he's very uh he very much just wants to do what he wants to do right at that moment um because shortly after that i think he did opera i'm trying to remember when that came out and that was another like giallo movie it's amazing um it still has an image in it that is like one of the most terrifying things. This girl who's getting stalked by this killer who's killing a bunch of people in this, uh, in this opera company and he ties her up and then forces her to keep her eyes open. And how does he do that? He takes a bunch of needles and he tapes them under her eyes so that she has no choice but to keep her eyes open while she watches him murder a friend of hers. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds yeah. hysterical. It's to laugh. Let me tell you. God. Real knee slapper that one. <laughs> and it's got a really awesome soundtrack. Like it's it's got a really rocking soundtrack. Argento, like he really knows how to build a film using all of the all of the other elements to to it. Oh, yeah. Um, So the film stars Jessica Harper as Susie Banyan. Harper would later cameo in the 2018 Suspiria remake, which we'll talk a little bit about at the end. Um, She was also in Minority Report, Shock Treatment, Phantom of the Paradise, and has appeared on the Apple TV Plus series C, the one with Jason Momoa that nobody's watching because it's Apple TV Plus. Uh, She's good. the rest of the cast, other than like Udo Kier, I don't, you know, the rest of the cast didn't really do much, but Udo Kier is the guy who blew up in Blade and he always will be 
just a that, that's the first time I ever saw like severe hardcore gore was when Udo Kier exploded in Blade. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Oh yeah. Good time. Yeah, actually, um Argento saw Jessica Harper in Phantom of the Paradise, and that's why he wanted her. I love that she came back and just even appeared in the remake. I mean, or reimagining, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> um, Suspiria has an IMDB score of 7.4, Rotten Tomatoes score of 93%. It was very nearly not released in the United States due to its disturbing content. It's the 70s. People need to lighten the fuck up. But once 20th Century Fox was finally persuaded to do so, Suspiria became Argento's highest grossing film in America. Because uh, people loved it. Because people throughout human history have loved to watch fake suffering. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, in 77, like a year before Halloween, Fox is like, oh, this is too much. <laughs> well, so Fox, because of how well it was doing in Italy, Fox like had to essentially like create a whole department on its own just to handle getting Suspiria to the States. Like, Think about that. Like that movie was doing so well that Fox was like, fuck, we got to, we have to make something to facilitate getting this movie here. So that in and of itself should tell you something. And the ripple effect that this movie creates, particularly for a young man at the time named John Carpenter is immense. Like he, he cited Suspiria and Goblin for being quite influential to him. And I think he saw he saw Inferno and was like, I want to make a movie like that. And guess what we got because of it? Prince of Darkness. Like, there you go. Like a very like heavy thematic movie that's all about ideas and not very much like plot wise going on. There's just a bunch of weird fucked up shit that happens. Argento, uh, John Carpenter channeling Argento. And he even, the first time he met Claudio Simonetti, he, <laughs> Simon, he, John Carpenter said like, yeah, I'm familiar with you. I, I stole from you <laughs> when he, <laughs> when he came up with the Halloween theme because of the repetition the way the the way that the um, Suspiria theme repeats throughout the entire movie, and it's kind of serves as a cue that something's happening. Halloween has the exact same thing, and how it's very uh, it's very elemental in what they were doing. Um, I know I told you this when we were just kind of talking, but um, Goblin only had like ten days to do the recording for Deep Red, and then they got three months. They got three months to do Suspiria and Simonetti was like just doing anything and everything they could experiment. They didn't have samplers, so they had to like create their own tracks of instruments and then layer all that shit together and, you know, use instruments like bazookies, which are just Greek fucking mandolins and how all of that stuff gets thrown in together. It's it just creates this really like primal guttural reaction. Anytime that, that, that music plays, like it, it, it does something to you. Like it lulls you into this, 
nice little relaxing mood. And then it just starts building these eerie elements into it. And by the time it's fully hitting you, you're just totally caught in it. You're just like caught in its trap. It's like, it's the, you know, the backing track for not just like something evil, but evil with a capital E like darkness itself is coming. It's, it's cool. Like it's, and it's, it's implied, you know, in the movie that this, this ancient force of nature is, you know, the ultimate evil and the music fits that so well. And in deep red, I got to say the music was my favorite part of, about the movie for a ten, for only 10 days. Well fucking done. That is a great score. <laughs> and then Suspiria is just, Oh my God. It's some of the creepiest, most memorable music in horror history. And maybe in film history. It's, it's beautiful and yeah. creepy as fuck. <laughs> well, and in the way it's in the way it's used, like I said uh, earlier on that goblins music is a character unto itself. When Jessica first arrives at the airport, anytime the doors open, you hear the theme and then only when she gets outside do you just get slapped with it right, right then and there and it's like <laughs> Joe Bob Briggs made a really a, a really good uh, a really good rant um, when he did an episode um, of the last drive-in with Deep Red and my buddy Ty and I were talking about it and because he had written a paper in college about Suspiria and the use of music in it and so academics will will use the word diegetic sound when they want to talk about music that derives from the environment of the or the world of the movie. And Joe Bob Briggs was like, if any of you come up to me and say diegetic sound, I'm going to punch you in the nose. <laughs> and he just starts going on this rant about how, you know, people that talk that way, they're not. They're not trying to talk to, you know, give you some kind of understanding about a movie. It's like they're just doing it to sound smart, sound jackassy. And he's just like, you know, why don't you just say that the music derives from within the world of the film? You know, like that gives understanding. It's like, but you say diegetic. What does that get you, class? It's like, punch you in the face. Like, <laughs> so, but that's exactly what it is. Like, but also at the same time, because you see certain looks on Jessica's face, almost like when that door first opens and, she, and that sound comes out, she's like, she looks and you get just this subtle little look in her eyes that she's just like, what was that? And then she does it again. And then by the time she's outside, she's just like swept up in a storm and she has no idea what's going on. But then there are other times where the music is just kind of like, it's just there. It's just almost like within the walls of that house, there's just like this weird eerie sound that just continues to emanate from all corners. No matter where you're at, there's some kind of, there's some kind of soundtrack to your doom that is playing. And it's, it's so, I don't know. It's, I have so much reverence for this movie because it does so many wonderful things on so many different facets of its construction that you just you're always going like holy shit i find myself saying that a lot when i'm watching this movie she's like holy shit holy shit <laughs> yeah it's you know it's what you hear when you're in hell it's it's a portent it's great 
Oh, by the way, this is already way longer than the first episode of Suspiria, the first version. <laughs> we we beat we did the, it. We beat we, the we clock. did it, guys. We did it. <laughs> uh, that's my definition of what a like long episode is has fucking changed. I will tell you that. Um, so let's talk about some high points. Um, I don't have a lot written down here, but there are some moments that I just fucking adore in this film. Uh, the opening, like your fir- our first murder, is considered in circles to be like one of the best death scenes in horror from just seeing the eyes through the window to just the hanging through the glass ceiling is it really sets the tone of like, you're about to, you're about to see some shit. (laughs) This this is not your grandma's horror movie. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, Argento, Argento famously said that he wanted to start his movie the way horror movies end. And he wanted it to just kick you right in the teeth and 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 even then like so you want to talk about narrative this is this is this is part of like his his genius with that he's using a scene that comes around at the end when jessica's remembering what happened when she first got there and she's hearing the same thing that this girl is saying but she remembers it later on um right after that girl leaves and runs to her doom um and a lot like it's it's so visceral like this girl knows that something is coming to get her and she just has she's powerless to stop it totally and utterly powerless no matter what she does she knows that she is going to die and she dies very very brutally both girls get it real brutal um that that stained glass that she falls through is just beautiful. Um, I am hoping at some point I want to I want to hash out my idea more, but I want to get a Suspiria tattoo, and I want to try and incorporate that that stained glass in there somehow. Because I'm a devilish bastard, and yeah. Um, what was I going to say about that? Oh, great. I just talked myself out of it. Anyway, keep going. I'm sure it'll pop back up. Um, but yeah, like he just drops these little nuggets that come through later on. So as much as Argento doesn't adhere to a narrative, he's still using it for his own purposes. Um, yeah. yeah. He's very much, you know, kind of, using elements of film and warping them to fit his own uh, sense of, you know, construction of a film here. It's, it's, it's very cool. Not a lot of filmmakers will change the rules. And I like when, you know, sometimes it's fucked up, but sometimes it works and Argento made it work. Uh, my, this movie has one of the scariest scenes ever for, for me personally. I got super unnerved the first time I saw this and it's when um it's when sarah i believe her name is is chased through the school by something and you just hear the music and you see a vague shadow but you've no fucking clue what's after her but my imagination ran wild and that i just kept thinking like get run girl like jesus christ it's and then just falling into the fucking razor wire 
it's such a well-constructed scene. It's so creepy. It's, it really like, you know, it forces you to imagine the worst. It's, I could go on forever about that scene. Yeah. It's just relentless. It's just relentless. And if you think about it, the, like I said about the ripple effects that this movie has had, there is, there's a movie that came like almost 30 years. Exactly. I think something like that, that had their own kind of pit of despair shot. And I want to say it was saw two, I think with the pit of needles. Yeah. Two. So there you go. Like to, <laughs> to, to, to doubt the legacy that this movie has is to really like not pay attention to who it's influenced and what that's gone on because it's, it's become a, it's become its own thing. Like if you go for a strong color palette and you're using it in, in a way to like characterize your setting or to, you know, just be its own character, you're, you're pulling a Suspiria. Like that's what, that's what anybody who's seen Suspiria and sees that kind of thing later, they're like, okay, you watch Suspiria. I gotcha. And depending on how they pull it off, you're either like good job or you're like, got to keep working, bro. (laughs) So um, it's, there's just so much about this film that continues to just entertain me with. Like I, I think if you, if, like I said about this movie being an experience, like it just, it hits you on so many different levels and even with watching it again and again and again, I, I never get tired of watching this movie. Like, I just, I don't, I don't watch it every day, but I also like, I can watch it probably like two or three times a year and still get the same level of enjoyment out of it because it is just such an experience. You're not like sitting there, like counting the beats on somebody. You're just like, oh shit. Because the way this movie is structured, like it's kind of just based on nightmare logic. A lot of the things that happen in it. And it just sometimes it just pulls a wool over your eyes and you just forget like that whole scene where um, Susie's walking through the halls and you see that like the door handles are obscenely high or then you're like, well, wait, are is she really tiny? Like the, 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 the Academy has this like disorienting geography to it where like, if you've really paid attention, the scene with the maggots where they're looking up and they're like listening to footsteps and they're trying to count footsteps on, you know, like her and Sarah are counting footsteps. Like what they, what they say that they're hearing is the kitchen, which is not above them, you know? So like all these things are just messing with you the entire times where you don't know what fucking up is down. Even the wallpaper in some of these rooms is very disorienting. It's like, um, you've seen labyrinth, right? Ah, I haven't. Okay, so there's a there's a part where um, Jennifer Connelly, who is also in a Dario Argento movie, um, phenomena, batshit crazy movie, it's wonderful. Um, she's walking through, but the way the um, the way the labyrinth is constructed, it's intentionally meant to deceive you, but it's also like deceiving just looking at it. And she gets this line, you know, like nothing is what it seems in here. So you kind of have to look at things, you know, in a different perspective. 
And she like walks behind, walks in between these two spots that like don't seem like there would be anything there because when you're looking at it flat, it looks like one continuous wall. But then she walks in between it and you're like, whoa, like what the shit? And there's a moment like that where Jessica walks through and she sees and you're just like, what the fuck? Like, what is this place? You know, you got like this MC Escher fucking wallpaper going on and you just, it's so disorienting. And you just have like no idea what's going on or what's up or what's down. And it's just, it's so, it's so engaging. Like there is not a boring set piece in this movie. Oh no, this, this film is, yeah. Production design is gorgeous. Sound design is incredible. It's yeah, it's great. In regards to the, the shadows and like the, you know, carpenter being kind of influenced by that i kept especially on this viewing i kept thinking of the fog i i don't know why i think it's just you know the shadow the the shadowy pirates and you know never quite seeing what's chasing them and the music kind of being all foreboding it's just cool that you know filmmakers like carpenter kept coming back to the well like kept you know remembering this film and others like it and just using that you know things from it to make their own masterpieces that's exciting i mean even the the labyrinth-esque like design of the how of this school made me think of uh stephen king and joe hill's short story in the tall grass where it's like yeah it looks like just your average you know you jump up you can see the road but you keep walking you're never going to get there you got to figure out what the way that it wants you to take and that's very much the house. You aren't in control here. The, the school is going to tell you where you're going to go. Like, just connections. It's nice. Yeah. Well, and I think it's something that Tarantino himself has said is like, you know, all of the great ones steal from one another. <laughs> you know, like, you can't you can't pretend that you're coming up with a a new idea if you are literally like ripping so if you're going to rip somebody off at least do it in a way that a calls attention to it but you're also going like yeah see i know my shit so go ahead and fucking say something i'm saying something right now so fuck you i'm already calling myself out um (laughs) it's like the thing about the um the the visuals in this kind of call back and I was reading an article or I was reading an article and somebody brought it up. I was watching a documentary from the special features. That's what it was. And somebody brought up a, um, an Italian uh, director that came early on. He's very avant-garde. Um, his name was uh, Pier Paolo Pasolini. And he came from this weird, um, really like polar opposite background. His mother was an artist and his dad was in the Italian army. He's a very fascist, right-wing leaning guy and very, uh, very religious. And his mother was like the exact opposite. <laughs> and it was through these people that he like had this really weird way of approaching art and painting and then later film. Um, he was also gay at a time when that was just 
not the thing to be. And he didn't care. Like he, he, he challenged all of that stuff. Um, there was something somebody wrote and I, I'd have to get the author's name again, but it's called uh, the cinema of poetry. And essentially what it states is that through Pasolini's work and how he was all about painting and the image, all of his films were constructed in a way that the shots could have been frozen on their own and they were essentially full-fledged paintings. And I think there are lots of moments in Suspiria that are like that. What makes Suspiria different from Pasolini is that they're often like these very gory, gruesome images and bathed in this intense primary colors. So like they're very shocking with their presentation. Pasolini was very, um, was very confrontational in his content and what he was trying to do and the, the, the things he was trying to talk about. Um, a lot of his stuff was about like Catholicism and he would have characters that were like name, like taking names from like Jesus or Mary Magdalene, but then they would like be the exact opposite of what those characters were like and, and what people would think they would look like. And he was always trying to challenge that. And Argento is just challenging you and assaulting you with these beautifully gory images is the little note I made about them there. Beautifully gory. I remember uh, watching the 100, uh, Bravo's 100 Scariest Movie Moments. And Suspiria was number like 15 or 16. And Eli Roth said about Argento that he puts the gore in gorgeous. And yeah. Spot on. Fuck yeah. Love that. <laughs> um, the ending is pretty freaky with uh, Sarah's reanimated corpse. Uh, you know, a gift of, of the, you know, one of the mothers. Uh, creepy shit. Uh, I remember, yeah, just the image of her, like, you know, cackling as she comes out of the, out of the fucking closet. Uh, I remember thinking just like, how the fuck did we get here? <laughs> like, right? This is this is not what I expected to watch today. <laughs> no. This is a fairy tale that would make the brothers Grimm go, damn. <laughs> yeah, man. It's, it's it's wonderful. It's one of those, you know, I love talking about, especially this comes up on Oscar Sunday a lot, game changers. Films that change things. Films that showed the way like the full scope of what you could do. And I think Suspiria falls under that umbrella. I think just, you know, how inventive Argento was on every aspect of this production. And then the influences that would come from this, this film, I think I'm, I'm labeling it a game changer straight up. Yeah, no, I, I, you, you won't get any arguments from me in that category. Um, just, just because of everything that he was doing, he was taking risks and he was not afraid. Like he was, just, he was just going for it. He had these ideas. I think, I think something else that is very worthwhile to note is that this was also uh, the beginning of his collaborate, his collaboration with Daria Nicolodi, who was his girlfriend. Um, she's also the mother of Argento's daughter, Asia. So um, you know, not, not the least of which, like, you know, she's, 
she's 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 part of that family and she was also very uh influential uh in her own way with um with the uh genesis of suspiria because a lot of um the the school setting came from her and stories that her grandmother would tell her and how she like studied at this place that was teaching little girls about the occult and all this stuff and these weird stories that she would tell her you know that the, all the girls thought that you know the there are witches running the school and all this shit and you know argento takes that idea and he runs with it on some of the stuff that he had even been studying himself and asking people about black magic and all of this stuff um so like you get these two together and it kind of it, it also serves as a turning point because the majority of the cast in this movie is female like the like a lot of the main characters are females um argento inaccurately but also famously says there's only three men in the movie and all of them are missing something one of them is blind the other one is mute and can't talk and then the other one is the only boy dancer at the academy and it's heavily implied that he's gay so like but then you're forgetting about the taxi cab driver, Udo Kier's character, the doctor that puts, you know, you know, so like very inaccurate. I understand what he's, I think I understand what he's trying to say is like the people that are like involved in the, in the, in the house, there's only three men in that whole house. And each one of them, you know, is not a complete man. If you want to, if you want to label it like that. Um, so I'll go ahead and use this as a jumping point to talk about one of those characters getting their comeuppance and also how it like it takes a place that has its own dark past and then uses that to great effect but also the sheer amount of work that went into that is mind-boggling um and it is when Daniel is walking through that square, which is called the Konigsplatz. And that was a place where Hitler had a lot of rallies with Nazis. So right off the jump, he's using a place that was, you know, a jumping off point for the Nazis. And it's all of these giant wide shots where you see him like, fucking two inches on the screen he's just this tiny thing and he starts to hear something coming around him you hear the suspiria theme playing again and you as the viewer you're like oh shit something's about to happen something's about to happen and he's constantly looking up and looking around him and i think at one point you something is on one of the uh one of the buildings and then when it goes back there's like nothing there and you're like, oh shit some of the shadows um is that a witch on a broom or, you know, whatever, like you don't know because you can't really see it's, it's so vague and it's happened so fast. And then Argento pulling a Hitchcock and having you intentionally looking up, but then the danger comes from fucking right beneath you that somehow it gets into his dog and that dog fucking rips his fucking throat out. And it's, it's just such a great example of using every tool and using every manner to, to get that done. It took them, I think, like two or three weeks to figure out how to light that spot for that, for that scene. Because think about how huge it is. 
you literally have to be so intentional with the types of lights, where they're going to be at, and then make sure that you're getting coverage for all angles that you're trying to use that. And um, Argento just on a whim figured out how to get a camera to do what he needed it to do. And they essentially just ran it on a fucking wire, a big steel wire. They ran this camera through on the wire to get it to like fly the way he wanted it to. It's all just coming up with a, having a problem and coming up with a solution right there. And that definitely speaks to his improvisational um, instincts and how he just, he, he was, he was always willing to take a chance. And I, and, and this is another reason why, why I say that this is Argento's like, I, I don't want to call it his peak. I want to say he's operating like he's firing on all cylinders in this, in this movie. Like every decision he makes comes off every chance he takes, he hits a fucking home run. I remember thinking, this is weird that this is the second Italian horror film I've seen where a blind person gets ripped apart by their dog. Because <laughs> that happened in the beyond as well. <laughs> I just remember thinking, like, is that a thing? Does that happen a lot? Like, is that going to happen again? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Somebody's getting something ripped out, whether it's by a dog or by a person. You know, it's Maybe it's going to happen one way or another. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> are there any other um, scenes in the film you want to um, you want to spotlight? Anything else you'd like to say about Suspiria? Um, I mean, we've kind of just been been talking a lot about it, just all over the place. Um, I think, I think again, like we've we found ourselves with a, with a movie that the, this is a movie for me that lives up to its hype. Like its legacy is definitely earned and it's, I've, I've showed this. I think, I think I've only had one person and that's probably because this just wasn't their kind of thing that didn't like it when they first saw it. And I've, I've showed this to people who have, who I've talked about it to, and they've seen it and they're like, oh my God, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And I can't believe I'm just now watching it. I'm like, hey, look, you found your way here. That's all that matters. <laughs> That's what I said to Caleb when he watched it. I was like, you're here now. It's all, it's all that matters, man. <laughs> we all make different journeys to the destination. Exactly. I don't care what path you take. As long as you make it, that's it. That's all that matters. That's all that matters. I might, I might playfully jab you every now and again, but you know, only willful ignorance will get, or a willfully like ignoring something and not wanting to watch it yeah. because you're too fucking cool and you don't want to like. Then I'm gonna make fun of you because you're a fucking idiot. Yeah. If I just said it straight up, like we're not doing Suspiria because I don't like Italian movies, like fuck that shit. Yeah, gotta open your mind. It's life's more fun that way, especially when it comes to film. Uh, here are three filmgasm facts. Number one, the woman playing Helena Marcos was not credited. According to Jessica Harper, she was a 90-year-old former prostitute who director Dario Argento found on the streets of Rome. Just 
you look weird and ugly. You want to be in my movie? <laughs> I wonder how much she got paid for this. I don't know, but think about this. How good was she to be 90 years old and she retire from prostituting? Or maybe she was working still. Who knows? Said former prostitute, but we don't know when that retirement happened. <laughs> God, I just love Argento's like, all these actresses are great, but there's, I just, I need someone so ugly and frightening that it's got to be like the definitive moment of the movie. Who is that? <laughs> and I'm just picturing like some streetwalker who just looks like death itself. And he's like, I must have her. It's, I would watch a movie about that exchange alone. <laughs> oh boy. Number two. Daria Argento was inspired to make this film by stories of uh, Daria Nicolodi's grandmother, who claimed to have fled from a German music academy because witchcraft was secretly being practiced there. That's awesome. And I think you talked a bit about that. Just about yeah. her stories. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And um, like Daria Nicolodi was very influential in like making sure that um, there are a lot more of, there's a lot more of a female presence in Argento's movies um and i think argento himself from when she was in deep red she is almost more masculine than david hemming's character in a way like she's way more like running yeah. headlong into danger and like doesn't give a shit what's gonna happen she's got to figure this thing out and david hemming's is more just like oh i'm a jazz pianist i don't want to get my hands dirty like you fucking pussy yeah she kicked his ass in arm wrestling and he's like yeah. that was a cheat like yeah. ugh, fucking bruised ass ego mm-hmm. but i just i love that her grandma was like at a ballet academy and fucking suspiria happened to her like they were fucking witches <laughs> that's horrifying that's, right but that's what happens when you take those stories and then you hand them over and you start hashing them out with a guy like dario argento who's just like has this vivid imagination and he knows exactly what he wants to do with that and knew that he was done with giallo movies he didn't want to do that anymore it didn't it didn't excite him it didn't interest him i'm just gonna go full-on fucking bananas supernatural on you and that's i think and that's something else i think that really is remarkable about suspiria in in the pantheon of like horror movies where you know it's like it's got to be a monster or there's you know zombies or shit like that like very very few times do you catch a movie that is like heavy into the occult and the supernatural elements of like magic and witchcraft and whatever you want to call it and like really leans heavy into it and it just it fucking hits like i i would almost i would almost call this like a psychedelic folk horror movie in a way because it's dealing with these folky themes of you know pagan religions and kind of like how they interact within the modern world um it's actually an idea i'm 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 gonna throw at my buddy ty and i'm i'm gonna wonder how he feels about that because if there is one thing he he loves as much as italian horror movies it's folk horror movies so yeah, um, it's going to be an interesting conversation. Let's see how that one goes. Because oh, yeah. I just I just thought about it, but that's kind of like, that's kind of what full quarter is in, in, in a sense. 
So that would be interesting. And I just remembered um, the, the way Argento wanted to make this movie. So like a lot of times, like, cause I know when I first watched it, like that movie hits right at 10, right at the fucking high point. And then it just kind of like, it starts to do this, it just peaks and valleys, peaks and valleys. He said that he wanted to make a quote unquote, real magical acid trip of a movie. And I don't know if you've ever chased the tiger, Connor, and it's okay. You don't have to admit, I don't want your employment to be called into question. I don't care. I'm not scared. Um, I've done that. And that, and, and as soon as I saw that quote, I was like, holy shit, like that is so true. And it's so true. Like you go through these moments where everything's really, really intense, really, really intense. And then you just kind of come down and you're like, all right, I think I'm good. I think I'm good. Oh my God, my walls are crawling. Oh my God. And then you're coming back down again. You're coming back down again. And then you're like, oh my God, did I just see eyeballs in the window? I don't know. And you're just constantly just messing with you and going up and down. So yeah, Argento, psychedelic acid trip, fucking folk horror movie about ballerinas and witches. That is my summation of what Suspiria is. You That's wanted great. one. I got, I, I gave it to you. That's great. Yeah. It makes, yeah. At, at every point in this movie, you don't know if we're asleep or we're awake. You don't know if this is actually happening. If she's just losing it. If someone drugged her, it's all open to interpretation. And yeah, regrettably, I have not chased the tiger as you eloquently put, but <laughs> it is on my bucket list encourage you at least once yeah at least once try anything once kids sure if you're going to take any advice from this it's you know live a little or live a lot and, if you want to yeah exactly <laughs> and i will say this try both once acid and mushrooms different experiences will do i'll i'll let you know <laughs> um and then number three in 2008 a remake was announced with david gordon green as director However, in 2014, Green dropped out due to budget concerns and legal issues. I remember for years there was a Suspiria remake on the docket, and knowing what David Gordon Green would later produce, I'm intrigued by what his vision would have been. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of, I don't know. Like at, like at that time, I think hearing about it, I was like, I don't like that. Yeah. Just because anybody, anybody that's going to go at it, they either have to have the balls to stand up to it and say, that was pretty good, but I can do better or say, I'm not going to do anything like that. I'm going to do something completely different. And that is what I think we got with um, Luca Guadagnino's film. Yeah. I think it would have been stupid to just do a shot for shot remake of Suspiria. Nobody would have liked that. But this world is so open to interpretation, like I said, and so vast in its mythology that you can play around in that world and do your own thing and still have it kind of not match up, but, you know, stand a little close to. Uh, and that's what we got in 2018. Suspiria, Luca Guadagnino's version with Dakota Johnson and Tilda Swinton starring. Um, it's surprisingly not bad. Uh, similar tone, uh, really long, about two and a half hours, unnecessary. But, and I, I figured like if anybody, if anyone was going to hate this movie, it was going to be me. But I liked it a lot. 
I was really surprised. And if you all want to check it out, it's it's a prime it's a prime video exclusive. They produced the movie, so it'll always be on prime video. Uh, the original one, a little bit harder to get a hold of. Yeah, I would say if you can try and track it down, um, I th- I'm not 100 percent sure if Synapse. I think they have like a standard release of it, of their Blu-ray of it, um, unless their their rights for it have lapsed and they don't have it anymore. Um, in which case, do your due diligence to try and hunt it down, even if it's a DVD. Like, it's it's something that you should experience at least once. Um, and you know, I I had to get it. There's a whole saga with what I went through to get this on blu-ray when it was getting released i was still on deployment and i had i had jamie actually buy it for me like i told her where to go what it was it's like you got to get this just do it today please because i literally like i woke up purposefully on that day just to tell her to go get it because i knew it was going to sell out and she got it and then ups fucked it up and it was supposed to be delivered to my mother-in-law's house, which is where they were staying while I was on deployment, her and my son. And it never showed up. And I came back and it still hadn't showed up. It had been about a month and nothing had come of it. So I'm literally freaking out. Like I just paid all this money for this movie and I was upset. And like my mother-in-law was upset. She was just so pissed off that this was happening she was going to the ups store like what is going on like why isn't this here like nobody's giving me any answers i literally called the synapse office got a call back from don may jr one of the owners of synapse there's literally like a two-man operation there and i literally talked to don on the phone and i told him my whole story and he was like okay look keep your mother-in-law on it See what you guys can get out of it. Call me back in a week. If that DVD doesn't show up, I will give you my personal copy of it. I always keep one of any of our releases for myself. He's like, you tell me that it doesn't show up and I will send you my personal copy as a thank you for you doing what you do. And I didn't really want to like pull that card but I only did it because it was relevant to my story. And for him to even go that far to want to do that, I was totally floored. And I let him know immediately that it came and I, and I had it and he was very excited and happy for me. But I was also like, look, you didn't have to offer that to me. You could have easily just been like, look, dude, you're going to have to get the standard edition. We'll refund you, blah, 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 whatever. But he didn't. And that is like, that was a moment where I was like, wow, like, People that really love these kinds of movies are some of the best people to know because they will do whatever they can to help you out and get you the thing that you want. And to this day, like anytime I see that, that movie on my shelf, I think about that story and I think about Don May Jr. And just how it was really extremely generous of him to even offer that. Cause he was even like, look, People call me all the time and tell me this kind of crap. You know, I believe you, but I've been burned in the past before. And it's like, and I don't think you would, I don't think you, you don't sound like the kind of guy that would do that. You know, so he's like, just let me know. 
call me back in a week. And if it's happened, then I'll send you my copy. No questions asked. I was like, holy shit. And I, I, I think I might've, I might've said like, thank you. Like 18 times after that, just totally floored by that. So yeah, that's, that's another, that's another reason why like this movie is so special to me. It's like, I was halfway around the world when that thing was getting released and I'd been tracking it for months and to know that I got it and then to go through that agonizing situation of terrible UPS service and to finally have it, is just such a relief. That's a, that's an awesome story, man. That's really cool. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't have a story behind my acquisition of Suspiria. I walked into a half price books. I saw it in the foreign section and thought, Ooh, and then I left with it. That's my story. Yeah. But I do like, I like how, you know, you mentioned that like the, the people who like these movies are just solid people. And that's true. The horror community really like on all levels is incredibly supportive of each other. It's, it's a really neat thing. No other genre of film has that. Uh, it's so cool. Reminds me of the like Sid's weird toys in Toy Story. Like on the surface, they look, you know, creepy, disturbing, but th- all they want to do is help you out. <laughs> they're the they're the good guys. <laughs> That's cool. And I looked it up. Um, there is a 4K uh Suspiria that you can get on Prime on uh Amazon for 33 bucks. So there is now a 4K of Suspiria. Yeah, I think that's um I think that is the one that uh, is also done by uh, Synapse, if I'm not mistaken. Yep, their logo's on the cover. That's them. Yep. Is it that? Is it that one? Oh, no, 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 it's not. But it, it does say that, like, Synapse Films is in the bottom left. It's got the lady dangling from the glass ceiling. And oh, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a great cover. <laughs> that is, that's something. I like that. Uh, but I don't have a 4K, so it's not happening. <laughs> um, I'll find a Blu-ray of this eventually. Well, if you ever, if you're ever in the market for it, this is what I will tell you. There is a, and, and I'll send you the link to the website. It's a place called 220 Electronics. They're based in the States. And what they do is they sell 4K and Blu-ray players and they can um, modify them to be all region. So you could literally have a 4K Blu-ray player and then buy anything from anywhere in the world because sometimes there's stuff that doesn't get U.S. releases. And you can go through some of these other shops that sell imports of things and you can pick up movies so i think i had been telling austin about it for a while and i think he went and got one it it levels the playing field i'll put it to you like that because then then you're just not limited to whatever it does make it does turn your uh your surfing habits crazy because i look at websites from england and you know, like all over the country. And it's just like, Oh my God, there's just so much. There's like two places in Australia that I look out for what they put out. And I'm just like, Oh my God, there's just so many movies. I want them all. And yeah. So 
it 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 opens so many doors but then you're also just like i don't have enough money for all of this i feel like i don't i don't have enough to feed my need right now like is this what a junkie feels like <laughs> i i literally just dropped 150 bucks on freddy versus jason versus ash the graphic novel so yeah i'm a junkie <laughs> i i've been thinking about that for six months just waiting like when all right i'm gonna have money then and i'll just i'll just wait like but yeah it's this whole you know we're junkies it's there's there's no other way to put it we're fucking film junkies yeah and i'm okay with that because i'm i'm not gonna you you might find me like passed out on the couch with my hand in my pants but it's not from over drinking or anything like that it's just because i fell asleep watching you know watching a movie that's all yeah this is yeah it's it's not my you know it's not nate ball it's my fifth argento movie (laughs) yeah yeah there's a difference okay one of them does not give you a hangover oh boy ah i just got it um i give suspiria an eight super creepy great intro to italian horror if this is the uh avenue you want to drive down and i think it has you know one of the best soundtracks and color palettes in film history so solid eight for me oh i i, I waited for a while to 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 add this one to it but this is one is definitely a solid 10 for me just because it's it's endured for more than 40 years it's created so many influential moments for other filmmakers and it's it's become it's become associated with you know a a decade that you know a a lot of really great movies came out in the 70s but this is probably for me like one of the best it just it it stands out because it's so unlike anything else that came out at that time. I had to, I'll, I'd have to look again, but there is a list of like movies that came out and you're just like, wow, all, all of those came out, you know, star Wars came out in 77, but like Suspiria is so different in, in so many ways, but I think like, it's also, it's also just such such a such a piece of like art where star wars is a really fun story it's a really engaging story and it's just it, it's it's got its own um it's got its own legacy attached to it and it's got its own experience with it but like i don't for me it doesn't stick with me the way suspiria sticks with me yeah i get that not, that's not a surprise whatsoever but yeah figure to be a 10 this is one you've wanted to do on this show for a while and i'm glad we were able to to dig into this uh i hope this deep dive into suspiria was better than the last one i think so uh thanks for listening everybody i'd like to thank my awesome team austin johnson caleb Leger, and of course josh allred for helping me churn out content we can be proud of this is awesome shit yeah <laughs> yep and i will take this moment to say like if you guys are enjoying the things that we're doing, the things that we're saying, or if there are things we're not saying, and you want us to talk about them, um, 
You can email us filmgasm at gmail.com. Uh, you can also interact with us on Instagram uh, at filmgasm, uh, Twitter at filmgasm. You can also find me on Twitter at zombie killer. That's Z zero M B K L R. And yeah, I mean, hit me up. I'm always, I'm always up for a conversation. Um, you can find our videos on YouTube as well. Um, the shows go there. We're all over on uh, most of the podcasting apps. Um, I use Spotify cause I pay for it for other reasons. Um, but yeah, hit us up, say hi. We won't bite. I promise. Yeah. And if you, you know, want to throw a little green our way, you like the show, you want the show to succeed. You want to hear, you know, movies that you like, feel free to, you know, sponsor, you know, we love, we love that, you know, one, five, 10 bucks, whatever you want to throw at us on your podcasting uh, platform. There's a little thing that says, you know, sponsor, sponsor this episode or sponsor this show or something. And we would be eternally grateful if you want to, you know, help us continue to make this as badass as we like to think it is. <laughs> oh yeah. I always, I've, I've, I've had nothing but good times since I started doing this. Um, I've said it before that this has been pretty much, you know, checking off a big, a big box for me in being able to talk about horror movies, movies in general, um, and also getting an avenue to write about them. And that's something I've been wanting to do for years and I'm doing it. I love it. Thank you for bringing me in to the fold, so to speak. Um, yeah. I don't know okay. where else I was going with that, but absolutely, man. It's my pleasure. This is, yeah, this is the best. Um, I was tired as fuck before we started and I, all my energy's back. So yeah, this is the best. <laughs> um, next week, we're beginning a new cycle of choosing movies, new way. We're going to pick the films. We're going to be choosing in cycles of five with each of us four choosing one film per cycle with the fifth being chosen from the book of filmgasm, which is our endless list of potential episodes. So, I, you know, Josh gets a pick. I get a pick. Caleb gets a pick. Austin gets a pick. The book gets a pick. And we're just going to jumble around it, make a cool like schedule. Like, Oh, this would be fun for after that. And then just once we're all up, we pick five more. That's how we're going to do it from now on. And next week is Caleb's pick. The crew of a spaceship are stranded on a planet that's home to bloodthirsty creatures who only come out at night. On the eve of a month-long eclipse, the crew's only hope for survival is escaped criminal Richard B. Riddick, old Dick Riddick, in the 2000 cult action horror flick Pitch Black. Uh, <laughs> Caleb adores this movie. Uh, I have mixed feelings about it, which will for sure come out next week. Uh, but, you know, it'll be fun for him to visit a, a favorite. So pitch black next week. Uh, also, don't miss the 2018 skateboarding documentary Minding the Gap on Oscar Sunday or Marvel's new blockbuster Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings on Monday's sneak preview. Until then, stay the hell away from witchcraft and never trust ballet dancers. Odds are at least most of them are dancing for the devil and keep watching movies. Thank <laughs> you.